You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Colossians chapter 1, 24 through 29. And I'll read the, the text for us, and, uh, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get started seeing what God has to teach us from this text this morning. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we have heard read from your scripture, as we've heard sung, as we've prayed, Father, we are so very much reminded, Lord, of the power of your word not only in its testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but the, the sufficiency of your word as your people gather to worship you. Father, we pray that as we begin to look towards Colossians this morning, to, to think through what it means for your church to evangelize the world, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, Lord, to understand and to hear the plain truths of the text before us. And Father, that you would be with me, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in 1786, so that's a a few centuries ago, but in 1786, there was a young man by the name of William Carey. Perhaps you've heard of him. William Carey went to a minister's meeting. Pastors like to get together and and hang out. And and you might imagine that what pastors like to do when they get together is talk theology and the Bible. And so that's a lot of times what we do together. And the same was true with William Carey. This young man getting ready for ministry, meeting with a group of pastors that were, were much older than he was. And so Carey was at a unique spot in his life. There's often a period in our youth where we're really wrestling through what we think, what we believe, and, and Carey's kind of in one of those moments as well. He's, he's wrestling with this idea of the Great Commission, particularly this idea that just perhaps the Great Commission wasn't just for the apostles, as most of the people uh, in his churches thought, but maybe just perhaps Christ intended the Great Commission for every believer in Christ. And so Carey's wrestling through this. And so William Carey, as being the young pastor in the group, said, all right, well, William Carey, you get to pick what we talk about today. What would you like to talk about? Well, again, Carey's been struggling with this, this issue. So he proposed the question to the group of pastors, asking that If Christians, including ourselves, if we have the obligation to take the gospel to the world based off of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, 
And so a conversation began to erupt. But as soon as Carey proposed it, an older pastor at the meeting opened his mouth and told William Carey, he said, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. And so the older man's criticism, though, wouldn't squelch William Carey. In fact, this question began to burn in his heart. So six years later, William Carey is preaching at the annual meeting of Baptist churches that have gathered together in England. He's, he's gathered, it's kind of like the Southern Baptist Convention. They all get together for once a year for a meeting. And so Carey's preaching that, that, that year, and he's preaching from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 2 through 3. Let me read his text. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So carrying that sermon from that text makes the, the argument, the, the admonition, the encouragement to those who are there that, that the churches, these Baptist churches, that you have the responsibility of taking the gospel to the heathen world, to the nations. And that this association of churches, he says, has the responsibility to send out missionaries so that the gospel could get to those nations. And it was during this sermon that Carey proclaimed his oft-quoted phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And so Carey in this sermon urged the people there to take the gospel to the nations, to send out missionaries so that all the peoples of the earth can hear about what Christ has done. But that old pastor back from that pastor's meeting not uh, six years ago, told, well, made this comment after that meeting, that after he heard Kerry preached, he said the whole congregation was moved and felt convicted of the shameful neglect of their obligation to take the gospel to the heathen. But as typical of powerful sermons, people say, all right, amen, great sermon preacher. And I'm sure as people walked out the door, they, they patted Brother Kerry on the back and said, thank you for that word, brother. That was great. Thank you. We need to, needed to hear that. And then they all went home. And so Kerry, in desperation, grabbed his friend's arm, a friend by the name of Andrew Fuller. And he said, are you, after all, going to go and do nothing? His sermon demanded a response. And the next day, something happened. The next day, a resolution was passed in the meeting of the churches to form a plan. And that plan eventually culminated and gave birth to a mission society sponsored by those Baptist churches. And eventually, that missions society would send out their first missionary, William Carey, to India. And thus, William Carey is in many ways attributed of being the founder of modern missions. William Carey's story is, is fascinating, but it's a wonderful starting point as we think through what it means to evangelize the world. So over the last few weeks, we've been working kind of phrase by phrase through our mission statement as a church. So we've seen it here on the back, right? We've talked about what it means to exalt Christ and worship. We've talked about what it means to edify the saints in discipleship. And today we're thinking through that third phrase, what it means to evangelize the world for the glory of God. And how are we, as Redemption Church, as we're preparing to publicly launch and found and covenant together in August, how 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 are we going to do that? And that's our focus for today. And to that, we turn our attention to Colossians chapter 1, the pa passage we just read. 
Because here we see Paul, who is the missionary and the church planter, right? That's who he was. Traveled all around the world, planting churches, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul speaks of his ministry as a missionary, as a church planter, as an apostle. And he talks about the toil of his labors as he's going about trying to evangelize the world for the glory of God. And I think as we look at this text today, we can learn about the work of Redemption Church in evangelizing the world. So here's the the sermon in a summary. In sum, at Redemption Church, we will evangelize the world, proclaiming Christ to all people. We will evangelize the world and proclaim Christ to all people. So as we walk through this scripture passage together, we're going to look at five aspects of our work of evangelism. So the first is the afflictions of evangelism. Second, the calling of evangelism. Third, the message of evangelism. Fourth, the aim of evangelism. And fifth, the power of evangelism. You can get those as we go. But let's talk about the first one of those, the afflictions of evangelism in verse 24. Now, as we think about the life of the Apostle Paul, Paul's life was one of suffering. Indeed, part of his calling as an apostle was bound up with this idea that Paul, um, God is calling you to suffer, right? So remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church, and he first met Jesus on the road to Damascus where the Lord appeared to him, knocked him off his horse, blinded him in shimmering light. And you'll remember that, that God told another Christian to go and share about Christ with Paul and to heal him from his blindness. This was Ananias, right? And so the Lord told Ananias, he said, Go, for he, being Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show, this is God, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So part of Paul's calling to be a Christian, calling as an apostle, calling as a missionary, is bound up with this idea that, Paul, you're going to experience afflictions. You're going to experience sufferings. And of course, as we learn about the life of the apostle Paul, not only in the book of Acts, but through his testimony given, through his epistles, we see that Paul experienced incalculable suffering in his life. I mean, just look through 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul boasts in his sufferings as a foolish way to try to convince the Corinthians that he is, in fact, an apostle. But he gives this laundry list of sufferings that that he endured as a missionary, as an apostle. He said he was imprisoned and beaten countless times. So many couldn't remember. He was whipped five different times with 40 lashes, less one. He was beaten three times by rods. He was shipwrecked three times. He was exposed, meaning he didn't have shelter many times, often hungry, often thirsty. These were the sufferings that Paul endured to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This was the afflictions that he endured, and and his afflictions far surpassed probably any that you or I would ever experience as we proclaim the gospel. This is what Paul endured. But perhaps the astonishing thing about verse 24 of Colossians isn't the fact that Paul endured afflictions and sufferings in his missions work, but rather his attitude 
as he experiences those sufferings. Look at verse 24 of Colossians 1. He says, now I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How in the world can Paul endure all of these hardships, all these difficulties, all these afflictions, and yet still at the end of the day rejoice that he is enduring them? That's a big question, and and really an exposition of the book of Philippians would be a wonderful way to see the source of Paul's joy, because as we look at Paul's letters and as we look at Colossians 1, the reason Paul can be joyful in his sufferings is because his identity is so bound and found in Christ alone that any suffering he endures to advance the gospel is no loss because he's living for Christ to his, his treasure. And so as Paul thinks about his work, his work for Jesus' sake, but also for the sake of the church, Paul says, sure, I, I'm afflicted, sure, I suffer, sure, I toil, I struggle, but I do so with joy for your sake and for the glory of God. And then Paul says something that perhaps might make you scratch your head a little bit. Look at verse 24, the second half. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What is he talking about there? Is Paul saying that? That Christ's death upon the cross wasn't sufficient? Is he saying that there is elements of Christ's sufferings that wasn't sufficient for atoning for our sins? No, that's not, that's not what he's saying at all. That's not what he means. Rather, what, what Paul is implying is that Christ's sufferings wasn't deficient in its ability to atone for our sins, but it's deficient in a different way. What was lacking in Christ's sufferings was the suffering that it would take to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what Paul is talking about. That in, and what he's doing in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that he's bearing the cross, so to speak, of taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the Gentiles to the end of the world. This is what Paul is doing. He's suffering to take the gospel to those who have yet to hear. So the gospel of our afflicted Savior would be taken to the nations by his afflicted servants. That's the way God designed it to be. And Paul says, that's what I'm doing. That's what, I, that's what Jesus was talking about when he talks about picking up your cross and following him, that the gospel of Christ's sufferings would be proclaimed by suffering evangelists. Those two go hand in hand together. Now that makes a very important observation, doesn't it? as we think about what it means for you or I to evangelize the world. And an observation is this, is that we must count the cost to evangelize the world. It will not be easy to reach our community, our city, our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be sacrifice, of course. Right? If we want to be about taking the gospel to our city, that means we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone a little bit. We're going to have to sacrifice time and money and energy and resources in order to be about the work of the Great Commission in this city and beyond. That's just the suffering, the light sufferings, relatively speaking, that, that we're going to endure. But we might also experience further suffering as we obey the Great Commission particularly those who will move or relocate or travel overseas so that the gospel might be spread. But nevertheless, the Great Commission task is bound up with a posture of suffering. This is the pattern that the New Testament gives us. So as we think through what it means to evangelize the world, 
We have to understand the cost that it will bring upon your life and upon our church's life. We must count the cost. But as the martyr missionary Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That as we think about what it means to give up ourselves, to give up the rights to our life for the sake of the spread of the gospel, there really is no loss at all. But rather, we are pressing in further and deeper into our true treasure, who is Christ Jesus our Lord. And what we lose in this life, we will happily gain in the next. For to live is Christ, to die is gain. So as we think about evangelism, what it means to evangelize the world, we have to think through the afflictions. Paul, Paul is clear about that right out in verse 24. But secondly, let's think about the calling of evangelism in verse 25. The calling of evangelism. Look at what he says in verse 25 here. He says, uh, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul talks about his calling to the ministry as this idea of stewardship, right? That God has entrusted Paul with the gospel. Christ showed up, sent Ananias. He, he was trained by the apostles. Paul received the gospel from the Lord himself, so that he could steward it to others, to give it to others. And so he sees this idea, his calling is bound up in this idea of gospel stewardship, preserving and passing on the true gospel, undistorted, untainted by worldly philosophies. He's, he's passing that on to others, and he's proclaiming that gospel to new people. That's the essence of his calling. Now, you might be thinking, well, Paul is Paul. Paul Paul's a... I mean, he's an apostle. He's wrote most of the New Testament. I mean, he's a he's an important guy, and he had a big calling. But you know, but Paul's calling's not my calling, and I would, of course, push back on that quite a bit. Sure, you might not be called to full time ministry like the apostle Paul was, but even Paul was a dent maker on the side to support himself. But even still, Paul's calling was unique in a way that perhaps yours and mine isn't. But in the same time, every Christian has the calling of the Great Commission upon their lives. We can't simply outsource the Great Commission to paid professionals, but rather this calling as Carrie discovered, right? This Great Commission isn't just for the apostles, it's for every believer. And every believer has the responsibility of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So this is for you. You must proclaim Christ. Now, you might be thinking, well, how do I do this in my everyday life? If I'm going to be about the work of the Great Commission, if I'm going to be about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, if this isn't just for the Apostle Paul, but this is for me too, I'm called to do this, how am I going to do that? Well, it's important to make sure you know what the gospel is before you share it with people. So can you articulate the gospel? Can you share the gospel with someone else? If I sat down with you and asked you to, to tell me the gospel in three minutes, could you do it? Or would you struggle with what to say and how to phrase it? That's an important starting point, because if you're going to steward the gospel, you have to at least know what the gospel is and be able to at least somewhat articulate it to somebody. If you can't do that, you can't do evangelism at all. So it's important to make sure you know what the gospel is and 
Perhaps some of you who have been walking with Christ for a while, maybe you've gone to some evangelism training events, which can be wonderful tools to to help you understand how to explain the gospel simply and efficiently and effectively to people. Those are good things, but what tends to happen is we go to those trainings and then we just never put it into practice, do we? We, we're, I mean, we can go to all the evangelistic training seminars that we want, but if you're not actually evangelizing, what is it for? So however, I suspect that one of the reasons we don't evangelize is because we don't know the gospel, but even if we do, we tend to think that in order to do evangelism, you have to kind of morph yourself into some sort of high-pressure door-to-door salesman in order to do evangelism. And that's just not most people. You know, it's difficult for most people, most Christians, to be more aggressive in their evangelistic fervor, and those tactics can be difficult for us to do. So let me encourage you to put into practice, then, one of our core values as Redemption Church. And you might have heard us talk about this already, but it's this idea of missional hospitality. Missional hospitality, what is that? What doesn't mean pulling out your fine china, inviting a whole bunch of people over. That's not what what that word means. Missional hospitality means that your life is open, that your life is open and that you are welcoming towards outsiders (coughs) in the love of Christ. Means that your life is open, you're you're attentive, you're looking for people that God is placing around you so that you can welcome them, love them, build a relationship with them, so that you might be intentional with the gospel in that relationship. You see, it's difficult to share the gospel with people if you don't know anybody who isn't a Christian. Right? That's, I think that's one of the reasons why we struggle with evangelism, because everybody I know I go to church with, or they're all believers, and so I can't share the gospel with people because I just don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm not friends with anybody who's not a Christian. And if that's you, then, then I encourage you to adopt this practice of missional hospitality, being attentive and aware of the people God places around your life wherever you go so that you can build friendships, relationships with them, and leverage those relationships in love for evangelistic opportunities. So, again, what does that look like? Again, do, do I got to bring out the fine china? No, I mean, you can't invite non-Christians over to your house. It's wonderful. Go for it. But let me refer back to this guy named Matt, right? Matt, who's becoming the mascot of Redemption Church, I think, after last week. If you weren't weren't here last week when we talked about Edify the Saints, I gave this extended illustration of this guy named Matt and kind of his average day of being a, a disciple maker, of edifying the believers. So let me pull out, though, two things from Matt's story, if you kind of remember it a little bit. I won't rehash it. If you haven't heard it, you can go back and listen online. But there were two things about Matt's story last week that talks about this idea of missional hospitality. I don't know if you picked up on it. If you remember, Matt in the morning was going to the gym and he was working out with a buddy from his church. And you remember that while he was at the gym, he and his friend began to strike up a conversation with another guy at the gym. And they invited that guy to come and work out with them tomorrow. And then in the parking lot, Matt and his friend prayed for that guy that they would be working out with tomorrow, that a relationship would be built and that evangelistic opportunities would result. You also remember, secondly, that Matt went to a soccer game after work to watch his son play. And while Matt was in the soccer game in the stadium, he struck up a conversation with another parent, began to talk with them, build a relationship with him, and had an opportunity to invite the guy to church and to share the gospel with him. You see how Matt's doing evangelism there? 
That's missional hospitality. It's being aware of the people that God has placed in your life and looking for opportunities to build friendships with people who don't know the Lord so that you can share the gospel with them through that friendship. So this is what we must do. How can you, in your own Christian life, this is a calling that we all have to be Great Commission Christians who are evangelizing the world, how can you adopt this mindset of missional hospitality? How can you do that? How can you be intentional about building relationships with those who don't know Christ? Perhaps there's a new family that moved into your neighborhood. Maybe you can knock on their door one afternoon and maybe bring some cookies and maybe invite them over to dinner the next week. Maybe you're at Starbucks getting some coffee, and you can go and find your barista. And and again, if you go get coffee a lot, like I do, right, you can build a relationship with the people who work there. You can build friendships with them and encourage them. And, And over time, a relationship will be formed that would provide you an avenue to sharing the gospel with them. Perhaps there's a coworker at work, somebody that... Uh, Again, you can build a friendship with, maybe invite out to lunch a couple times. And through a a friendship that is formed, you have, again, another platform or relationship in which you can share the gospel with someone. So, again, this is what we want to encourage everyone in Redemption Church to, to adopt and to implement is this idea, this posture of hospitable evangelism. That again, that you're open in this capacity to building relationships with people who don't know Christ so that you can leverage those friendships as evangelistic opportunities. Now, this can be a lot less threatening than going up and knocking on doors and throwing a track in somebody's face. Those can be effective methods, but those can be quite intimidating for people that aren't as confrontational, perhaps, in their personality or temperament. But I think every one of us can can be friendly, right? We can build relationships with people who don't know Christ and build those friendships intentionally so that we have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And chances are the gospel would actually be better received from a friend in love than a stranger in hostility, right? So let's, let's figure out ways in your life and in mine that we can build relationships with those in our city who don't know Christ. This is part of the calling of evangelism, and it's a, a culture within our church that we hope to create and to implement and, and to model. So one of the critiques, though, of this idea of missional hospitality, of relational evangelism, is that maybe you never get to the gospel. Maybe you're just building friends with people, but you never share Jesus with them. And that's an important critique and one that needs to be addressed. And that leads us to the third point from our text this morning, the message of evangelism in verse 26 through 27. Because you might have heard the phrase before, often attributed uh, to St. Francis of Assisi, though he probably never said it, but you might have heard this quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Sounds nice. Kind of talks about the importance of loving people and living out the Christian faith, which is great. But the, the only problem with the quote is that Words are always necessary to share the gospel. (laughs) They're always necessary. You're not sharing the gospel if you're not verbally communicating the the truth about what Christ has done for sinners like you and me through his atoning death upon the cross. We have to share content. We have to share the message of Christ. Christ. 
So look at verse 25 in, in Colossians 1. Look at what Paul says. He talks about, uh, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches we proclaim. Uh, excuse me, I skipped a line. The Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you see that Paul, as he's talking about his work of making the word of God known, Paul's talking about a set of beliefs, a set of convictions. He's talking about the truth of the gospel. And he often describes, as he does here in Colossians 1, the gospel as a mystery. A mystery. Sounds mysterious, right? Do I need to become Sherlock Holmes in order to figure out the gospel to do evangelism or, or become Nancy Drew and pull out my old books from as a kid or the Hardy Boys, right? That's, but that's not, what, that's not what Paul's talking about when he speaks of the gospel as a mystery because he doesn't just do it here. He does it kind of all throughout his writings. So what does Paul mean when he talks about the gospel as a mystery? Well, he's talking about the gospel as a mystery hidden for, from humanity for generations, but now that Christ has come, the mystery is revealed. The cat's out of the bag. Now we can see that all of history has been culminating towards the arrival of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who would be the bearer of humanity's sins. And now that this mystery is revealed, those of us who have been revealed this mystery, we have to share it with other people so that they can know the mystery as well. So the mystery is not some sort of secret only for a few, but rather those who have been made aware by the Spirit of God of the truthfulness of Christ's identity and his work, we have the responsibility of taking that mystery and telling other people about it. Here is what God has been doing all along. We would have never thunk it, but here's what he has done. He sent his own son to die in the place for humanity so that our sins could be forgiven. And God is doing this not just with Jewish people. He's doing this with all the peoples of the earth, Jew and Gentile alike, so that God might receive praise from all the peoples of the earth. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's the mystery that's been revealed. But to show you, uh, if you want to flip over there, you can. But look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. And notice the similarity here between his language and Colossians 1. Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, right? So this, this mystery has been revealed. It's been made known to the apostles, to the prophets, and now we share the good news of that gospel to all people, even the Gentiles. Praise the Lord, because that's most of us, right? So this is what we sung about. Even earlier today, as we sang, come, behold, the wondrous mystery. Remember that verse? Come, behold, the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. This is that mystery, the mystery of the gospel now revealed. 
So this is important as we think through missional hospitality as what it means for you and I to do evangelism is evangelism isn't just living a Christian life. Sure, that's part of it. In fact, a very important part of it because we don't want our message and our lives to be contradicting each other because then no one's going to listen to our message. But we must share a message. We must share a message. We must share the content of this mystery, of this gospel to the people we encounter. And we must do so as soon as possible. As we're building relationships with people who don't know the Lord, and I encourage, again, every one of us to be figuring out ways we can do that wherever we go. But as we build those relationships intentionally with one another, we must get to the gospel message itself. We can't just be friends with people, play golf with people, play soccer with people, drink coffee with people for months and months and years and years and never share the gospel with them. That's disobedient. We must get to the actual sharing of Christ's message. We must make that turn in which we ask them about their spiritual condition, share with them what Christ has done and urge them to repent and believe in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the aim of our evangelism is certainly to get people to put their faith in Christ. But the aim of evangelism is actually much broader than just that. And that leads to the fourth observation I want to draw out from Colossians, the aim of evangelism in verse 28. See, as we talk about evangelism and discipleship in the church, a lot of times people dichotomize those two. We think of them as two completely separate things. All right, we do evangelism over here and we do discipleship over there. And they don't go together and we kind of keep them separated. But, but that's a false dichotomy as we see in the scripture. As you look at the New Testament, as you look at the Great Commission, Jesus says to make disciples, not just get people to make decisions. And even as you look at Paul's words here in Colossians, as he's talking about his missionary purpose, right? The, the calling that God has given him to take the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says, him... We proclaim, Christ we proclaim, right? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the aim. That as we share Christ with people, we just don't want people to walk down an aisle, sign a decision card, and then go live their lives. But rather, we, as we proclaim the gospel, we want to call people to make a decision for Christ, to put their faith in Christ, and then we want to Present them mature in Christ, which means that we must get people connected to the local church, to the body of the saints, in which they might be edified as soon as possible. It's vital for new Christians to get connected to the church as soon as possible. Far too often in our efforts to do evangelism, we do evangelism poorly, meaning we get people to make a decision and there's no follow-up. There's no connection to the local church. And so there's no way to ensure that they are mature in Christ, let alone persevere till the end. And so we have to be careful of this false dichotomy that we make. Because there are some people that are very, very passionate about evangelism. Praise the Lord, right? We want to we reach people. We want to get people to make decisions for Christ. And then those same people tend to be very wishy-washy on discipleship and follow-up. They're just kind of all about, you know, knocking their, uh, seeing who they can get into the kingdom, get, adding the numbers up and putting a notch in their belt and saying, all right, we did the evangelism, we did the Great Commission, let's all go home. But at the same time, those who tend to be more passionate about discipleship 
about seeing the maturity of God's people rooted in his word tend to be very disobedient in evangelism. Why does that tend to be? Because the scripture does not separate those two. The scripture holds them both together. They're the same part of the Great Commission. Yes, we should be evangelizing. Yes, we should be trying to reach people for Christ's kingdom, but we better be discipling them. We better come alongside them and build them up to maturity in Christ. And if we're going to be passionate about discipleship, if we're not evangelizing as mature Christians, then you're really not as mature as you think you are. Because maturity is married, not, uh, measured not by knowledge, but by obedience. And by being disobedient in evangelism, we're revealing just how immature we are in Christ. The two go hand in hand together. We shouldn't separate the two. And notice what Paul says here, that the same gospel that we share to win people to the kingdom with is the same gospel that we use to build them up to maturity. Look at what he says. He says, him, verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching one everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice it's the same message. A lot of times we think, all right, we got to keep the gospel simple and, and call people to believe. And then once you become a Christian, well, we've got, we've got more advanced things for you to do, to learn, to think about. But Paul says, no, this same Christ that you are one to the kingdom with is the same Christ that is necessary for you to proclaim in order to make people more mature in Christ. As Tim Keller has said, the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's all of it. And so Paul is passionate about, as we proclaim Christ, we do so not just in evangelism, but in discipleship. In fact, Paul sees the two as unified together. So this is something we must do as a church, that as you are out sharing the gospel with people, and we pray that you are, that you're being obedient in that as you're building relationships with people who don't know Christ, that as people come to know Jesus, and we pray expectantly that God will do that through your work and through your faithfulness, it's our responsibility to help those people get connected to the life of the church as soon as possible. We don't want to just go around and pat ourselves on our back for getting people to make decisions and never following up with them, never coming alongside them. Because your task in evangelism is not just to share the gospel, but as people come to believe in Christ, you then have a responsibility to disciple them as well. The two are not separate. The two go together. And that leads us, fifthly, to the power of evangelism in verse 29. The power of evangelism. This idea of the Great Commission, of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, of being obedient to that in your life, living a life of missional hospitality, that can seem incredibly overwhelming and challenging. Particularly as we read here in Colossians 1 that such faithfulness often brings suffering and difficulty and inconvenience in our life as we do that. And sometimes as we're trying to be faithful in sharing the gospel, we see very little fruit as we do. As we get one no, one no, one no after another. It can be discouraging. It can feel fruitless. We can feel powerless. But thanks be to God that our evangelism effectiveness is not dependent upon our ability, but upon God's faithfulness and God's power. Look at what Paul says in verse 29. He says, for this I toil, there he goes, back to suffering again, back to the trials and the difficulty and the afflictions he endures in his evangelistic ministry. For this I toil, struggling with all of my energy. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. All of his energy that he 
powerfully works within me. Paul says, as I'm engaged in this work, it's hard, it's suffering, it's difficult, it's painful, it's heartbreaking, but yet I toil, I work, I labor, not in my own strength, but in the strength that God has provided me in Christ Jesus. See, church, if we are going to be faithful in evangelizing the world, we must be prepared to work and we must be prepared to be dependent upon God for this work. You can't save anybody. Only Christ can. And Christ will save as his people are faithful in sharing that gospel to the world. God will use your efforts to build up his kingdom. We believe that. And we believe that so much that we get on our knees and pray that God will do it. Knowing that the power of our effectiveness rests in God's ability to do the work. So we pray that God, through our witness, might save our friends, might save our co-workers, might save our barista for the glory of God. That as we share that the Spirit will come alongside and give them ears to hear that the Spirit will soften their heart, that the Spirit would cause them to be born again so that they might repent and believe in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. At Redemption Church, this is what we want to be about. Right now, we are inwardly focused by design. We're focusing on getting this new work set up, making sure that the founding members are united in our doctrinal commitments, united in our vision and focus as a church. But beginning August, when we publicly launch, we will be publicly launching. This emphasis of evangelizing the world will be a driving impetus in our community together. We will be encouraging you, pushing you, admonishing you to be about this work. And we have great hopes of what God will do through Redemption Church. Again, not in our power, but in his power. But we, we want to see people come to know Christ. We want to see people repent and believe in this city and trust in Jesus Christ. We want to see new churches planted from within the body of Redemption Church. We want to see missionaries be raised up from within our own body and sent overseas to go and share the gospel with other people. We want to be a church that sacrifices, not just financially, but by even sending out our people to go and be about this work of evangelizing the world. Because this isn't just my work. This is your work. This is our work, our responsibility, our privilege, our joy to sacrifice for Christ's kingdom cause. And yes, there will be times of pain. Yes, there will be time of frustration, of wondering why God isn't working how we would like for him to work. And when we are discouraged, we do not lose heart, but we press in deeper and more dependence upon God in prayer. And we pray that God would do the work that he's promised he will do by building up his church. Back to William Carey. For William Carey, Evangelizing the world wasn't just a hypothetical idea, something that, you know, he thought about as he read the Bible or prayed, but it became a conviction that deeply gripped his own heart, a conviction that led to action. As Carey became the first missionary sent out by those Baptist churches and sent to India. And when William Carey finally made it to India in 1793, a life of suffering awaited him in that country. For his first two years in India, Carey did not receive a single letter from back home. 
radio silence for two years. In his first seven years of laboring in India, he never saw a single convert. Not one person made a profession of faith. After 19 years of hard work in the country, a fire destroyed all of Kerry's linguistic work and Bible translations that he's worked on. All those documents, all those scriptures written in the native language, gone in a fire. He lost his first wife to death. He lost his second wife to death. And he never went back home to England after 41 years of serving as a missionary. But nevertheless, nevertheless, the cause of Christ in India continued to grip Kerry's heart as his passion for God's glory never waned over those 41 years. And here's what Kerry had to say at the end of his life. He said, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God. And his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the sure word, would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. God's call will triumph triumph. And as we hope to, as a church, be about this work of a great commission, there will be difficulty, there will be sacrifice, there will be suffering, but nevertheless may we have the resolve that God gave to William Carey, knowing that the cause of God will triumph. Therefore, with joy, we evangelize the world. Let's pray together. Father, we are overjoyed as we think about the great gospel that we have received by your spirit. Lord, we have believed upon Christ as our Savior and Lord, and Lord, you have given us a responsibility, a stewardship of not keeping that gospel to ourselves, but by sharing it with all the world. And this is the very purpose upon which we exist, for which you created us, to bring glory to your name as the gospel spreads so that people from every tribe, language, and tongue might praise Jesus Christ as Lord of all. That is our prayer. That's our desire. That's our motivation in all that we do, even in the planting of Redemption Church. Father, we want people to come to know Christ. But Father, we know that it will be difficult. We know that it will be sacrificial. We know it will be challenging. But Father, help us to be faithful in our callings, to build relationships with those who don't know Christ so that we might share the message of Jesus' wonderful salvation that he has provided through his life, death, and resurrection. And Lord, through every fiery trial, every painful wound and suffering, every loss as we send out one of our own, Father, we pray that the gospel would go forth, Lord, that your kingdom will triumph, and that you would help us to be obedient in evangelizing the world. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your wonderful grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.